Okay guys, so today joining me we have Dr. Franz Duval. He is a Dutch primatologist and atologist. He is the Charles Dower Kendler Professor of Primate Behavior at the Emory University Psychology Department in Atlanta, Georgia, US. He is also the director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. He is also a distinguished professor at the University of Utrecht and the author of numerous books, including Chimpanzee Politics and the Bonobo and the Atheist. Hi, Dr. Duval, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. Okay, so uh, to start off with, and perhaps for people who, who don't know, um, what does primatology offer to the study of human psychology and behavior? Well, humans are primates, and so uh, humans fall under primatology, I would say. And um, our psychology is not particularly different, I think, from that of other primates. And so everything, everything we value in life, like family and politics and sports, which is competition, basically, all of these things, they, you can find them in the primates. And so there's, there's a, a shared psychology. I would say, and, and so if we study the primates and we study, let's say, um, primate politics or primate family life or cooperation or competition, all of that relates to human behavior as well. Mm -hmm. So, Andy, is there a primate model, uh, apart from humans, of course, that we could consider to be uh, the one that is best to compare to humans and to understand humans? So because we have very many things we can study like cognition emotions morality sociality and so but but uh, is there a primate apart from humans uh, that, that is closer than the others that use you would say or you would consider to be the best one to compare with humans well the um, the closest ones are chimpanzees and bonobos and they're exactly equally close. Unfortunately, for those who want to make easy comparisons, they are very different animals, chimps and bonobos. And so uh, chimpanzees are quite violent and dominance-oriented and territorial, um, and bonobos are much gentler and friendlier and sexier. And so um, some people pick a species and they prefer the chimp because of the male dominance and, and all the violence. And, and others, they pick the bonobo. They, they are more um, into uh, equal relationships and friendly relationships and so on. Uh, I always feel that we need to make a triadic comparison between the three human and the two uh, pan species, bonobos and chimps. And, and that gives us a more complete picture. Uh, but then very close then you have the gorilla who's very close and the orangutan those are all apes and then we get to the monkeys in some languages the distinction distinction between monkeys and apes is not so clear so for example in 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 the us of course an ape is an anthropoid ape is a tailless large primate just like we are we are basically apes uh, and monkeys is a very different category monkeys are smaller and have tails and in some languages, people don't make a distinction very sharply, but in English, fortunately, we make the ape-monkey distinction very clearly, because we are clearly apes. So you can compare us with monkeys, like a baboon or a macaque or a capuchin monkey, and we have a lot in common with the monkeys, because they're also primates. 
but it is a bit more distant. Uh, usually the comparisons that, that I would think are most relevant are the ones with the apes. Mm -hmm. And do these comparisons map with the evolutionary history of primates? So uh, if the primate is closer to humans in terms of the evolutionary tree, let's say, uh, uh, does it have, um, does it share uh, some aspects of cognition and sociality and so on that are closer to humans than another primate that, uh, that is not uh, as closer to humans? Yeah, the, I think for the cognition, this is very obvious. So the, the last 25 years, we have seen enormous advances in animal cognition and there's very few differences left actually the people have postulated many differences between humans and chimpanzees let's say and and all of them have sort of disappeared and that is mostly with the apes and so the the, the mental capacities of the apes are very close to ours uh, as soon as you go a bit more distant uh, you get also different capacities uh, and and if you even go more if you go outside of the primate order Sometimes we get specializations there or animals with large brains like elephants and dolphins uh, or ravens. So sometimes outside of the primate order, we get species who all of a sudden can do all sorts of things that we do. Uh, and we are very surprised because they are so distant from us, but they have large brains and they have, so for example, the, the raven, the corvid family, they have large, high density of neurons in the brain. So they, they have maybe smaller brains, but they have a high density of neurons. And so outside of the primate order, we find some animals who can do remarkable things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and one very interesting thing you do in your work is that you attribute in intentionality to the actions performed by, for example, chimpanzees. Um, uh, and I mean, uh, there are people who criticize this kind of and uh, what they call anthropomorphization or something like that. But do you think there's good reasons or evidence for us to do so, to attribute intentionality to other primate species? Yeah, I think intentionality is all over the animal kingdom. I have no trouble with intentionality. Uh, a cat who goes after a chipmunk in my garden uh, is very intent on what it's going to do and, and has strategies to do that. So no, intentionality for me is not an issue. Anthropomorphism is not even an issue. So anthropomorphism is brought up often as a critique when you say that animals have emotions or when animals uh, solve certain issues by thinking. I don't know where that critique comes from because it's a critique based on human exceptionalism, basically, because anthropomorphism states that we should not use human type language to describe animal behavior. And I feel if two species are so closely related, like humans and chimpanzees, you have to use anthropomorphic language. The, the, the chimpanzee is known as an anthropoid ape, which means human-like ape. And so you have to use human-like language because from an evolutionary perspective, that is the easiest assumption. The easiest assumption is that if, if humans do something very similar to chimpanzees, we have to assume the same mechanism, the same psychology behind it. And, and it is the task of others who critique that, who don't agree with that, to prove to me that it's different. So, so the, the, the burden of proof shifts, in my opinion, to those who want to postulate differences between humans and chimpanzees from an evolutionary perspective. So I invented the word anthropodenial 
which is uh, which is a word that I use to critique people who are so obsessed with anthropomorphism, because anthropodenial is that you deny the connection between human and ape behavior. Let me give another example. If you take a horse and a zebra, if a horse and a zebra behave very similarly under similar circumstances, of course we're going to say that is similar behavior, similar, similar psychology behind it. Now, horse and zebra are about as close as humans and chimpanzees, and so I don't see a reason why with humans and chimps all of a sudden we follow different rules. So there are all these species that are related, like let's say coyotes and wolves, or uh, polar bears and brown bears, and all these animals that are related, we, we always assume similarities, and we have to do the same thing with humans and chimps. Mm -hmm, exactly. And uh, what kind what kind of moral sentiments do chimpanzees share with us and that we could consider to be at the basis of human sociality and morality? Well, that's a long list. For me, the, the most important ones are empathy and sympathy uh and compassion compassion is more complex and, and and i'm not sure i i never use that word when i speak about chimpanzees but let's say empathy and sympathy that's one and the other one is reciprocity and with reciprocity and doing i do you a favor you do me a favor that kind of exchange with reciprocity come all sorts of rules including sense of justice and sense of fairness and, and so those are for me the two pillars of morality and, and for both we can find many parallels with primate behavior. So in the empathy and sympathy domain, there is now increasingly research even on rodents. So, so mice and rats are being used for that kind of research. And empathy, if you define it as you are in tune with the emotions of others, you uh, respond to the emotions of others, you are interested in the situation of somebody else, if that is empathy, then empathy is found in many, in all the mammals, I would say, but maybe even in some species outside of the mammals. The um, reciprocity issue has also been investigated many times, in, also in, in rodents sometimes, but many times in the primates. And it's very highly developed, and we do research on the sense of fairness in monkeys and in apes. And we believe that they have a sense of fairness, they respond to inequities, for example, uh, and so I think in both domains you see a lot of similarities. I would not necessarily say that this makes chimpanzees moral beings the way, way we are moral beings. I, I think that is, there are complexities in human morality that I'm not sure I can find in the chimpanzee. So, so, I, so the, the way I usually phrase it is that they have the building blocks of morality they have the psychology that gave us morality, uh, but there's maybe some elements missing. And, and that is a discussion with philosophers I sometimes have. What are the elements that are missing? Uh, and it's very hard to, to define. But for example, one of the things that we humans do is we, we, when we have moral rules, is we try to justify them. We, we try to come up with reasons why we have them. And, and I'm not sure that chimpanzees do a lot of that kind of discussion about justification of the moral system that they have. Mm -hmm. And what is Machiavellian intelligence and how do, for example, chimpanzees deploy uh, Machiavellian intelligence in their political behavior? Well, chimpanzees, more than almost any other primate, are very political because the males are always trying to improve their position. They're constantly 
politicking, basically. And the politics is, is driven by coalitions. So the alpha male is not necessarily the biggest male. The alpha male can be the smallest male if he has the right support. So uh, since it is not purely based on physical strengths, but on diplomacy and having supporters, sometimes female supporters, but most of the time with the male chimpanzees, it's male supporters, they also need to keep their supporters happy. So if, if I become alpha male because you support me, I need to give you something. I need to let you mate with females or have food or not attack you or all sorts of things that you, benefits that you can have. And if these benefits disappear, then you your support may disappear. And so you get transactions between individuals. And another aspect of their uh, system is divide and rule, which we knew, know in humans very well also, uh, which is that um, if I'm the highest ranking male, I will not tolerate that my best partner grooms with some other male. He's not going to be doing that because I will not tolerate that and I will interfere. And so the divide and rule system in chimpanzees is very elaborate uh, and, and is based on their understanding how important these coalitions are. So if you understand your coalitions and you know how important they are, you're going to protect them and you, so you get these divide and rule strategies. So the chimpanzee is very complex politics and the females play a role in that as well. Uh, and uh, it's more complex, I think, than in most other species. And that is because the males have these, these coalitions that they maintain. So there are many animals where males support each other on a sort of opportunistic basis. So I, I support you one day and then tomorrow I support somebody else. But the chimpanzees, they, they, um, they nourish these relationships. They keep them going and they, they're very long-standing relationships of political interest, shared interest, basically. And if the interest is not shared anymore, let's say I have a partner who uh, doesn't give me anything back or a partner who um, cannot walk anymore because he's sick, uh, then I need to shift coalition. I, I, and, and it's very opportunistic in, in the chimpanzee. It's, it, yes, they, they work with certain partners all their life, but then when something better comes along, they shift. Uh, so, um, the alpha male in chimpanzee societies and chimpanzee troops uh, necessarily needs to have alliances with males, even if they are lower in the hierarchy, uh, to, to, to be able to keep, uh, to keep themselves the longest period of, of time possible in the top of the hierarchy, uh, and they also uh, mediate between uh, other chimps when they have conflicts um, among themselves, right? Yeah, you have sort of two alpha males, two kinds. You have alpha males who are bullies. They're usually physically very big, and they have gotten to the top almost alone, and they terrorize everybody, and they often end badly, in the sense that um, when they are deposed, they're chased out or killed. Um, there's not a lot of love for that kind of male. Then the second kind of male, and that's actually more typical, is uh, is a populist in in a way, in in the sense that he he supports the underdog and he keeps the peace. He's also the consoler in chief. If there's any upheaval and someone is distressed because they were attacked or whatever it was, he's going to go there and console them and calm them down. 
so the, the these alpha males they can become very popular if they're very if they're efficient at keeping the peace by interfering in fights um, they become sort of heroes for the group and then when they are this deposed which also happens of course um, they are usually just kept around they, they, they move to position three or four or five or whatever it is in the hierarchy but they they stay in the group and they have a good life usually so, so those are two very contrasting ways of alpha males. The bullies, um, there's a lot of problems with them. And in the wild now, we have increasing descriptions, not just from captivity, but we have increasing descriptions from the wild chimpanzees of bullies being killed by their, by their, by their group. And so they may stay in that position for, for a few years, but never for a very long time. And so an alpha male in who is a very good alpha male may stay for six years, seven years, sometimes ten years in power, and these bullies usually don't get that long, no. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, contrary to what many people think, uh, conflicts in primate species and other animal species, but let's stick here to primate species, uh, don't often escalate to intense physical violence and death, because they have other sorts of ways of communicating conflict, let's say, between themselves, right? Yeah, the violence is really last resort. They don't, in, in the group, within the group, they don't. So between groups, the rules are very different between groups. That's also true for humans, by the way. So between groups, I have nothing to lose if I kill somebody, or, or very little to lose. It's a risky thing to do, but I, I have little to lose. But within the group, I have a lot to lose because the group is what I depend on. I live with this group. I survive with this group. On my own, I cannot survive, so I'm dependent on everybody. Um, so within the group, I need to inhibit uh, whatever violent impulses I have. And so within the group, there's all sorts of mechanisms. There's the, the individual inhibitions, there are the de-escalations that you can do if things get out of control. There are outsiders who will interfere. Let's say I am going to attack some, someone. Then there's outsiders who may interfere. They may protect this individual or they may stand between us and keep us away from each other. Also very common in humans, of course. And if you ever go to a bar and there's a, a, a fight in the bar, there's always people who move in between and try to to, to de-escalate things. So that's very typical primate behavior. And pure violence within the group is unusual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, one very specific question I wanted to pose is, uh, how does the presence of estrus in females of the very many primate species influence uh, male sexual behavior and even perhaps the relationship it has with the frequency of infanticide as a reproductive strategy in primate species. Yeah, the estrus is advertised very differently in primates. So some primates, they have swellings, the females have swellings that, that advertise it. Humans don't advertise that way. and. And so that's one of the big differences with the chimpanzee and the bonobo, where the females do advertise. There's other primates, like the gorilla, where also females don't advertise the, the estrus. So that's one thing. The other thing is the seasonality. There are primates who are seasonal, like macaques, 
Uh, and so there's a particular season in which the males and females have sex, and then there's another season in which the babies are born. That's not true for the apes, and that's not true for us. Um, so, so there's all sorts of rules to that system. And infanticide um, is not clearly linked to, to either one of these systems. I think infanticide occurs especially in, in primates where males come from the outside. That, that's the most tip, the first discovery of infanticide was in Langer, mon Langer monkeys, where a male from the outside comes in and takes over. And of course, when a male comes from the outside, all the infants in the group cannot be his. He, he did not, he had nothing to do with those infants. And so all the infants, the young infants in the group, he may kill. Uh, and so females come into estrus sooner. And so that's the typical case, but there are more complex cases, like in chimpanzees, more complex. There are more complex cases of infanticide. And then in the bonobo, there, there's no observation of infanticide, not yet. And in the bonobo, um, we think the females have found a strategy, because for females it's never good infanticide. The females have found a strategy against it, in the sense that the females are very cooperative with each other, so they help each other, and if a male is aggressive, they attack the male together, so the females are actually dominant over males very often. That's one thing, and the second thing is that female bonobos have sex with everybody all the time, basically. So there's no way for males, it's called paternity obscurity, there's no way for the males to target certain infants because potentially every infant in the group may be their own infant. And so that, those are the, the, the dual strategy of the bonobo female, it seems. And uh, until now, there are no observations of infanticide in that species. Mm -hmm. But in the case of the bonobo, does that happen because uh, they, they have a female philopatric society, so the females stick in the same group throughout their lives and they establish a hierarchy. And so if they are together, it's easier for them to perhaps prevent males from killing infants and, and also because sexual dimorphism in bonobos is lower than in other primate species? The, both the chimps and the bonobo, it's the f females who move out of the group. So okay. in, both, in, in both species, the females migrate, the males stay. The bonobo females form a coalition uh, and, and are very close together, but within a community, they're not related to each other. That's why I've called it a secondary sisterhood. They, they act like sisters, but they are not related to each other. So the, in that sense, the bonobos and the chimpanzees are exactly the same. Um, the chimpanzee also, the females tend to move, be more migratory. And actually in our human species, uh, females very often move between groups. And so the males stay in the group. The women, women, it's exogamy, the, the women marry often men in outside groups. And so that's, that's a sort of general pattern. Um, the size difference between the sexes, yes, a, a female bonobo and a male bonobo are maybe slightly less different than in the chimpanzee, uh, but male bonobos are bigger and stronger than the females. And so in, in zoos, for example, if you have one male and one female bonobo, the male is always dominant. As soon as you add a second female to the group, the females are dominant because the females form a coalition. And so that's the typical pattern. The females are very solidary with each other in the bonobo. 
and the males are a bit loners, and the males are attached to their moms in the bonobo. So the males are very different from the chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. uh, and wh what is the role of face-to-face -face communication and eye-gazing in primate species apart from humans? Because, I mean, humans have the largest ratio of exposed white sclera, right? So we, is it particularly important in human societies in comparison with other primates? It's possible. There are some primates where there is white sclera, and so it's easier to see from a distance where someone is looking. Because that's what it does, it, it helps you determine the, the direction of the gaze. And in humans, um, uh, yeah, humans have, have a more clear signaling in that regard. And it, it's hard to say why we have that. It's probably because we, um, we constantly try to monitor each other's intentions. And this, is, this facilitates it. it. It means that we don't hide our intentions. Another thing that humans do that other primates don't do is blushing. Blushing is very interesting because blushing reveals some of your interior processes, even even at the moment that you don't want to reveal them, probably. So it's unintentionally you reveal embarrassment or shame or whatever the situation is. In the same way, the, the eye gaze with the white sclera, we reveal to others what our intentions are and what we're going to do. Um, so we have a signaling system that actually suggests very high levels of cooperation within our system. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these, these signals. So we, we are a very cooperative species, and we, we signal that constantly to each other. It's very interesting that we have that. Yes. So, uh, and is there any evidence of the capacity to self-deception in non-human primates? Yeah, that's... It's already very hard to demonstrate deception. And, and, and people have... Ex experiments on that are very hard to do. And self-deception, I don't know how we would ever do that. And, and I don't think it's beyond the primates to do that, but how would we know? No, we don't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, uh, and uh, about, uh, about culture, so what, what things can we consider to be culture in primate species apart from humans? And so, for example, a very specific example, uh, do, do the tools that chimps produce uh, uh, could be considered culture? And uh, if so, uh, do, uh, do they evolve? over generations, as happens in human societies, or do they stay the same uh, over time? Yeah, so we, we usually make a distinction between tradition and culture. So a tradition is a, a behavior that you learn from others, uh, by observation mostly, um, and there's many pieces of evidence for traditions. It started with the potato washing monkeys in Japan, where one monkey started to wash potatoes and then other monkeys learned from that individual how to do that. Um, and so there's many of these traditions in many species, not just in the primates. Song learning in birds also is also traditional. Song learning in whales, is, is, those are traditions. So traditions are very common. As soon as you have a whole bunch of traditions, we tend to speak of a culture. So if you have a, a chimpanzee group who has, let's say, 35 different traditions compared to another chimpanzee group that are different, 
then it, it, it makes sense to start speaking of a different culture. They have a different culture than, than this group. And so the term culture is used for learned behavior, not genetic behavior, but socially learned behavior, the difference between groups. And in primatology, we are very comfortable speaking about cultures, but of course the anthropologists are not always happy. The anthropologists, they, um, they have a long history of saying that culture is what makes us human. And so for them to hear that animals may have culture, they are not very happy with that proposal. And they come up with all sorts of difference. The, the only difference that I think is really relevant is that humans have symbolic cultures. So, so we, we have cultures very closely tied with language and, and s symbolism is very important in our cultures. And that's probably where the differences are. But the, the transmission of behavior by learning from others, is, I don't think that's uniquely human. We see that in, in many species. And, and so tool use in chimpanzees is one example, but there are many other examples of that kind of cultural traditions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, what comes first uh, in primates uh, in, and in primate evolution? Morality or sociality? That is morality or the way a society is structured around social relationships? Well, I think, I think sociality comes first because sociality we see in many species. So many species depend on group life for survival. They, would, they, they cannot survive on their own. And even for the primates, that's, that's very clear. For example, when male macaques or male baboons, they leave their group and they go join another group. That period in which they leave their group and try to find another group is a very dangerous period in which there's high mortality, which shows that without a group, you're not doing very well uh, because you don't have a warning system, for example. So if you live in a group, you have a warning system. Everyone calls when there's a predator. And so you benefit from that. If you're on your own and you're traveling between groups, you don't have that system. So yes, um, living in a group is very advantageous and uh, many of the animals do that. And, and that's how it got started. Morality, I think, is something that is added to it, is where you try to form the best possible group, the best sort of the optimal group life. And morality is concerned with providing the optimal group life, the best way of resolving conflicts, for example, conflicts of interest, which in every group occur. And uh, so rules of reciprocity or helping each other or cooperation or conflict resolution, all those rules, that, that's basically what the moral system does. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Dubol, I'm starting to get mindful of your time. So just before we finish, uh, could you please just tell people perhaps, I don't know if right now you're working on some interesting piece of work that you would like to share with people and also where people can follow your work and also if you're active on social media or not? Yeah. Well, to start with the last one, is I, I, I have a, a Facebook site, uh, which if you type in my name, Franz Diwal, plus public page, you come to my Facebook site and it's a very big site in which I post pictures and videos of animals usually. So my, my next project is uh, I'm publishing a book next year, next spring it will come out, um, and it's on the animal emotions. And it, the, the book it starts with the story of Mama, the chimpanzee Mama, and how she died and how the group responded to her death. 
so, so the, the, the book starts with a story on this particular female who was very important to me and to the group of chimpanzees, but it also describes the history a bit of how we study animal emotions. You know, the study of human emotions, of course, started with the face. Um, Paul Ekman, but also Charles Darwin, the face was the focus of attention. And because in the face we express the emotions most clearly, even though they're also expressed in the body and every, everywhere else, of course. But um, the facial expressions of the primates are remarkable and they are, they are just as complex as in humans and just as subtle sometimes as in humans. And so that's, that's an easy connection. And so in my book I do that as I connect what we know about the primate facial expressions and human facial expressions. I'm a student of Jan van Hoof who's a professor in the Netherlands who, who is a specialist in facial expressions. And so I'm, from, from very young when I was a student, I'm familiar with talking about animal emotions. Even though my colleagues, they didn't like that. They don't like emotions at all. So, so um, people who study animal behavior, it's only in the last 20 years or so that we speak of animal emotions. Before that time, they tried to stay away from that as much as they could. Now, everything has changed because of neuroscience. So the neuroscientists, they go into the brain of a rat and they look for the place where fear is activated. They find it's the amygdala, for example. Then they put human, humans in a scanner, in a brain scanner, and they, they give them f pictures that arouse fear and they see that the amygdala is activated. And so the neuroscientists, they say, well, in the rat brain and the human brain, these emotions, they work the same way. And so it's the neuroscientists who broke open that topic uh, but it's now becoming a big topic, and my next book is on on the emotions of animals. <laughs> okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Duval, I think it was a very interesting and informative conversation, and I would really like to thank you for sparing a bit of your time to being here with us today. Okay, thank you. Okay, so... If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.